Greetings, and welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. I'm Phyllis Hollis, your host. As an extension of my Instagram page, Cerebral Women, this podcast offers insights into the visual art world. I interview artists, mainly artists of color and female artists, who will freely articulate what inspires their creativity. In addition, you'll hear interesting perspectives from dedicated art professionals who work with artists and the art institutions that feature them. I'm confident that collectively, these individuals will indeed stimulate your mind as they do our eyes. Please know these interviews are conducted in my Manhattan apartment, so please forgive the background sounds of city life. Welcome to the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Today I'm delighted to feature Renee Cox on the Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. Renee is an artist, photographer, and lecturer. She shares with us her opinion on several topics, revealing her critical views on female sexuality, beauty, power, and humanity. Renee is known for using her naked body as a subject matter, which has sometimes been considered controversial and politically incorrect. The New York Times recently invited Renee to photograph Nick Cave for one of the four covers of T's 2019 Greats issue. You will appreciate her candid and direct discussions, which shed light on the sharp tone of her narrative and her ability to instill a lasting impression on all of us. Thank you, Renee Cox, for joining me today on My Cerebral Woman podcast. Yes, Vi Higginson from WBLS back in the 1980s. <laughs> oh, is that what I sound yeah, like? Who with I that sound very like? sexy voice yeah. coming across the airways. <laughs> Yes, Phyllis Hollis, how are you doing today? I'm very, 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 very. So, Renee, before we start talking about your accomplishments and uh, your style and your focus, I just want you to tell us about you. And when did you realize you are an artist? And why did you choose photography? Um, when did I realize it was an artist? I mean, that came a little bit later. Um, why, why did, did it come I late? choose... Why did it come late? Well, because I started out as a fashion photographer, so that's commercial. Okay, okay. You know, even though I felt artistic leanings in terms of having a message, even with my fashion photography, and at a certain point was not necessarily fulfilled that my photographs only had a 28-day lifespan. By that, I mean I was shooting editorial, I was shooting for a lot of magazines, and that's the, you know, the sort of shelf life before... You know, you move on to the next thing. Or Can I, in fact, while you're shooting, you know, the editor is like, okay, the next shoot is going to be. And then I'm like, well, look at what I'm doing now. This is like great. You know, like, can't we like just hold this moment for a second? And it was like, no, press on to the next uh, assignment. Can I mean, which was fine. I want to back up further, though, to childhood. Mm-hmm. Were you a child when you realized that you were leaning towards the creative side? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, I wanted to be a filmmaker initially. Okay, did your parents encourage you? They didn't discourage me. Oh, that's great. I would say that. Okay, okay. I I wouldn't say they encouraged me, but they certainly did not discourage me. And I was like, I don't know, a pretty savvy kind of kid. So it was like, I remember like pretty early on, like maybe 14 years old, finding out about the Helena Rubinstein 
Film Youth Foundation or something that was on Rivington Street. And I went there and, you know, mingled and talked and, you know, did my little networking, made my own little uh, Super 8 film and stuff like that. So I always had that idea in mind. I loved film. Um, and then I went off to Syracuse where my major was film initially. And then what happened was I found that film was like super expensive at the time. And uh, because this is way before digital kids, okay, this is A and B rolling and, you know, really sort of manual lengthy process of making a film um, that and I was selling my books in order to make films, too. Your school books? Your yeah. textbooks? Yeah, 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 at Syracuse. <laughs> and then um, at the same time, being a baby boomer, I was into sort of like immediate gratification. And with photography, I could do work uh, for like some local hairdressers, you know, a hair salon that was on campus, in fact, and shoot them in the morning and process and print the film and have prints for them by the end of the day and get paid. So I was like, whoa, this is kind of better. And it's still close to film. I mean, and it gives you more independence too, right? You don't have to work with the film, I mean, a production team or? Right. Although at Syracuse at the time, my instructor was this guy, Owen Shapiro, who granted was definitely ahead of his time because his whole premise was all about the independent filmmaker. So we weren't talking like Hollywood, you know, major production. It was like you could conceivably do a film, you know, four or five people, you know, somebody on sound, somebody on cinematography, so on and so forth. Somebody directing, that's three right there. Yeah. So you could do it. Right. What are you Whereas teaching? I am teaching uh, a photography, I guess, 101, Fundamentals of Photography. And then also I have 50 graduate students uh, interdisciplinary uh, within the arts, meaning from sound to painting to sculpture to mixed media, photo, so on, that I see uh, once a week, eight of them in a row, half-hour visits, studio visits. So one-on-ones. Yep. So you can really influence them. Um, well, I don't know. My job is not necessary. I don't consider my job to influence them. I consider it... Direction? Um, guidance? Well, no, yeah, guidance, but also getting them to get out of their own way. In what sense? To free them. From? Like I'm like an abolitionist for young artists. That's interesting. To, to get them out of their head because a lot of times they're second guessing what they're doing and they're looking for validation from outside of themselves. And at certain points, this can cause certain levels of, let's call it constipation. As an insecurity? Yeah, self-esteem, all of that. So a lot of times where I find it to be really beneficial is to be able to go in and to sort of suss out where the blockage is and then give them a little bit of wisdom behind it as how they can perhaps get out of that mindset and to tell them where it's coming from. 
So it sounds like you're a little bit of a shrink. I am very much. <laughs> I embrace that position yeah, because I think um, I take it with a lot of uh, responsibility. And I know from my own life, I mean, I was as cuckoo and as crazy as an unconscious as they are now. But I'm happy to report I've been able to control the egoic mind and keep it at bay. It never goes away, and it's always looking for a way to come back in. But when I see it coming back in or I feel it coming back in, I know what to do, which is to squash it and to say to myself, wait, you know who that is? That's your ego, and it's coming in there to fuck you up. <laughs> so you got to get going and you got to get out. So and the, that works. So in the 30 minutes that you have with them, how much time? How much of that time do you actually talk about their craft or building their skills? The whole time, all the time. It's okay. all connected. So it's all a com- it's combination. It's all connected, yeah. Okay, okay. Totally. And then the other thing that I do is I, when I come in for a crit, I'm not there to destroy them, slash and burn and all of this. I like to try to find the one thing that I see that they're doing that's good, interesting, or provocative. And then I'm like, let's try to enhance that aspect of it. So to take what they have and to expand on it and make it, quote unquote, better. So your time with them, do you ever reflect back to where you were mentally at that age? Oh, yeah, somewhat, but not so much. So it was such a different time. You didn't have yeah. sales fees. And, yeah, it was, and it was different. Media. There wasn't as much stress and whatnot. There, it wasn't as judgmental. I mean, although I say to them, it's a choice to um, to accept to be in that sort of mindset and to play that game too. Because I mean, you don't have to go there. You can be like, look, I'm not doing this because I'm not interested. And and basically, I think it's unhealthy, so I'm not going to go there. But if they get sucked into it, which is pretty easy for them to do, then I like to be that voice that says, you don't have to do that. So you lecture at Yale, NYU, Parsons. Mm-hmm, et cetera. Et so cetera. when you lecture, what are you? trying to teach or convey or inspire in the young minds that are listening? Well, when I lecture, I mean, usually I'm lecturing about my work and my process and how I um, develop the ideas behind the bodies of work. And I think I'm very honest and very generous with my experience. So when I get up to soul culture, that's when I'm able to share with them um, another sort of uh, a shift in uh, the mindset and where I'll talk about the fact of like, you know, even just basic things are sort of like how you think of yourself is what you project <laughs> out to the world and so on and so forth. So it gets into a little bit of the... Um, what do I want to call it? The A little bit of the spiritual, I would say. Um, I like to think that, as I said before, I can free them from themselves. If you ask me what my purpose is in life is to free graduate students from themselves so that they can express themselves 100% without 
um, the ties of, you know, philosophical thoughts of other people and to embrace what they're feeling. I believe that creativity comes from the heart, the soul, the gut, and then you take it up to the brain or the mind, which I remind them that that is merely a tool in terms of execution. And it's not a place that you're supposed to live there 24 hours a day, contrary to what the society is telling you at every given turn. So, so soul culture incorporates technology, mm-hmm. whereas your earlier works did not. It was self-portraits. Right. So when you're speaking to the students, do you, do you talk about that transition from just a still photo versus utilizing tech? Uh, I mean, slightly. It's not the basis of the um, sort of discourse. It's um, because, I mean, the way I look at it, the tech is here, right? When I started out, there was no tech. You had two things you could do in the dark. You could burn, you could dodge. Well, you could crop, but if you cropped, you were really a hack. And nobody gave you any respect for that because you had to crop in camera. And um, that was it. So now here comes Photoshop. And you got these engineers that I don't know what came over them, but now you've got 14,000 things that you can do and 14,000 different ways to do the same damn thing, too, on top of it. So it's like, whoa, it's a little bit intense. However, having said that, it does allow me to do compositing and so on and liquefying images and um, creating um a sort of other kind of universe using fractals, sacred geometry to create another kind of portrait, I would say. And how did you transition there from still? Well, I mean, it is still. And in fact, the great funny part about it is that when you look at the root of the images... It's the same portrait that I've been shooting ever since I was in high school. It's uh, shot like on a black velvet background. I tend to isolate parts of the body of my subject by using more black velvet to cover their legs or cover an arm or whatever it may be. I'll have them up on a ladder. I'll have them looking like they're running, all kinds of things. People, I mean, on my shoots, people have a lot of fun. They're like, oh, my God, I didn't know it was going to be, like, so physical. I was going to be, like, doing a workout, you know? And I'm like, yo, like, but that's, like, the best because then I get these great angles of the body and whatnot. Sounds like modeling, doing a modeling shoot almost. Ah, well, it is modeling. I mean, you're, you're posing, you right. know what I'm saying? And I am manipulating your body into different positions. So, Yeah. So in your early years, you were doing fashion photography, right? Yes. I started out as a fashion photographer. Um, After I worked at uh, Condé Nast at Glamour magazine, um, I was able to use that as a platform, not that we used that word back in those days, to uh, get designers, get models, and I started testing, 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 and building a portfolio, moved to Europe, lived in Paris for like two and a half years, continued shooting, and then came back to New York and 
did the same thing. And then after about a year or so, then started working for magazines, Cosmo, Mademoiselle at the time, which was another Condé Nast publication, Sportswear International, you know, Vogue. So you always focused on female bodies in the early years? Well, female and male. I mean, I shot for Ebony Male. They had a magazine at one point in time, YSB. It wasn't primarily, it would be whatever it, whatever it took. Yeah. And what are your thoughts on beauty? <sighs> what are my thoughts on, on beauty? beauty? I mean, beauty, I mean, I mean, I guess this is like cliche, but I mean, it, it comes from within. It comes from what you emote. It comes from a, a certain uh, confidence of um, oneself. Um, and then obviously there's some symmetrical things that are involved with it too. <laughs> That's helpful. <laughs> you know, if you have one eye like, you know, on your forehead or whatever, maybe that's not so great. But uh, generally speaking, slight flaws are fine. That's what makes it interesting. In some of your self-portraits, you portray a, a strong woman, a beautiful woman, a powerful woman, and a hero. I can't help it. That's who I am. <laughs> <laughs> so what was that journey like? How did you end up there from fashion magazine? That was easy. Well, because at a certain point, um, I, what I would say, it's like fashion didn't necessarily do it for me. Why not? And, um, because, I mean, one, I had done it for 10 years at that juncture, and I wanted my photographs to have more longevity. Um, as I stated earlier in this interview, there was this thing of, like, as you're shooting it, you know, you're on to the next shoot. And I felt that I put, like, you know, sort of my little heart and soul into what I was trying to communicate photographically, and then it was gone. And I wanted to have some sort of uh, legacy. Don't ask me why. I wanted to have that, I don't know. But that hit me maybe after I had my first child in 1989. Maybe it was part of my postpartum revelation of some sort. Because I realized that down the road, I mean, I couldn't be showing like these photographs, these spreads in magazines to my kids and going like, yeah, though, look at her. She's so fierce. She was gorgeous back then. And then they're going to look at me and go, well, she old now. So like, and I'm like, uh, and while the page is like crackling in my hand. So I was like, I don't know, maybe that's not so great. You know what I'm saying? In terms of longevity. So... And also, there was a very pivotal moment, I will say, where I was at Jerry's, um, which was a restaurant that was in Soho, and I used to shoot a lot of stuff for Sunday New York Times, like full-page stuff, for Macy's, and I was with this group of people. I won't mention any names in particular, but a group of, you know, solid people that were, like, working and whatnot, other photographers, too. And I had started to get a little bit more conscious about what was happening in the world around me at that time. And I was very interested in the ANC and Nelson Mandela and that whole struggle in South Africa, 
that kind of really touched me because it was like, my God, like how the fuck can they do this, <laughs> you know, in a country of like all black people. And so I'm at this dinner and Nelson Mandela's, it's the day that Nelson Mandela's released from prison, which in the New York papers probably made like, I don't know, the equivalent of like five or six lines. So I say at this dinner, I go, wow, this is like an incredible day. Like Nelson Mandela has been released from prison after I think, what, 26 years and, you know, for what he believed in. And now there's a shift and there's a change. And I'm feeling really passionate about it. And everybody at the table like paused and they said, Donald and Ivana are getting a divorce. Oh, shucks. And I was like dumbfounded. I was like, what? You know, like. That's like, <laughs> like, what are we Where's talking that about? From, right? Exactly. This is like crazy talk. Like, who cares? You know what I mean? You recently shot Nick Cave for his New York Times Magazine feature article. Mm-hmm. How did that come about? Well, they called me and they asked me if I wanted to do it. And I said, hell yeah. <laughs> so um, that's something that I really enjoy doing. And uh, I'd like to do more of that portraiture. That's always been a big thing for me. I mean, from the beginning of my practice, from the time I'm in high school. Uh, Portraiture, I would venture to say to you, it's more of a, um, after, after you have a certain technique and you know what you're doing technically, it's really, it's not that you're like a shrink, but it, it's, it's just the exchange of um, the person that you're shooting. and quickly kind of sort of getting to know them and feeling a rapport and so on and so forth in order to be able to get a good portrait of them. So the actual act of shooting, we can say it's a 60th of a second. But if you don't have that contact beforehand, you don't really get anything. So I love doing it. Renee, I know you don't like me bringing up this story, but I'm going to bring it up anyway. Please share with our listeners your experience you had with Giuliani. Oh, yeah, the one with the comb over. And your work at the Brooklyn Museum titled The Last Supper. All right, well. What year was that? uh, That was 2001. I did a piece called The Last Supper, which was actually shown at the Biennale in Venice. Uh, in a decommissioned church, and uh, it wasn't an issue. I mean, the Catholic Church didn't send out the Inquisition assassination <laughs> squad to kill me or anything <laughs> like that. In fact, the reviews were, you know, good. It was like people liked it, and that was it. They got it. And then shortly after Venice, the piece came to New York, and It was included in a show called Commitment to the Image, and I think it was 96 or 98 African-American photographers at the Brooklyn Museum. And at the time, I was uh, teaching a class at NYU, so I felt the responsibility to take all my little Caucasian students over there to see these 98 black photographers, because if I didn't, who was? So we went over to Brooklyn, and I'm happy to say that I was able to get them through about 75% of the show. And then we got to the room 
where my piece was hung, Yo Mama's Last Supper. And they had it sort of cardened off, I guess you would say, with a black velvet rope. Like it kind of looked like Studio 54, <laughs> like, you know, <laughs> like, ooh, you know, like, wait, no, you know, warning. Yes, yeah, yes, like yes. you can't go in here or something like that. And then I'm like a little silly myself. So I like to do this thing at museums where I go and I touch my work. So, because I know they're going to yell at me, and then I get to say to them, this is my work. <laughs> you know, I can do whatever the fuck I want with it, right? <laughs> it's a bit childish, but it's kind of fun. Anyway, so I did that there. And um, at that juncture, I had my, I don't know, 15 little white kids with me, my students. <laughs> and then suddenly it became like, I don't know, a Fellini film, you know, if you're not familiar with Fellini, please Google him because he's an incredible filmmaker. Uh, <laughs> yes. All of a sudden, like, all these press people popped out of the woodwork. And next thing I knew, I had microphones in my face saying, Mayor Giuliani says that you're anti-Catholic. Oh, really? And this and that. And, and with your blah, students? Blah, blah. With the, with the- my students were there, and they were fantastic. They, they just went into the mode of, like, I guess, um, what do you call it? Like, some sort of, like, control. They're, like, picking up my cell phone. Because now, at this point, my cell phone's ringing, like, off the hook. They're taking messages and stuff. <laughs> was like, at that time, I think it was $30,000. They got their $30,000 worth of, like, education right there. <laughs> and that day, again, it was live, right? And they're calling me all kinds of, not names, but they're implying that I'm a this and a that. So at that juncture in 2001, I will admit that I was very much in my egoic mind. So I kind of just turned around for a moment, I remember, and just actually looked at the piece because the piece was there and I'm looking at it and then all the press people are over there on the other side. And I said, Renee, this is the moment you've been waiting for. All this fucking attention is like (laughs) fucking unbelievable. This is great. Turned around and I'm like, why is he calling me anti-Catholic? What about commandment seven or whatever it is? Thou should not commit adultery and have my wife done a Hanover crying all over Fox 5. Oh, And no. then it was game on. Oh, you really? Know? Oh, yeah. That's how it went down. So the next day, all the tabloid papers, the Daily News, the Post, I'm on like the front page. Are they quoting you? Yeah. And they're like, photog model says. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> says that, you know, you know, Rudy Giuliani is this, that, and the next thing. And it was a time when everybody wanted to say that in New York, but people, everybody's scared, nobody says it. Mm-hmm. And I just said it. And it was just like, I was like, okay, this is great. This is going to be my position. My position will now, from evermore, will be the person who speaks the truth and will say what I think, untethered and uncensored. And that's what I did. And so it began. And Giuliani never talked to me. He would send his divorce lawyer anytime somebody (laughs) wanted to, um, you know, sort of have any kind of discussion, which was funny because it was this guy, Raul Felder. And 
I guess he thought like I would be afraid because generally the artist is portrayed as like some little nut job that's going to be like, oh my God, I'm being attacked. I'm going to go in a corner. I'm not talking, you know, whatever. <laughs> and the art world kind of likes the artist to be like that because, you know, the art world's like an unregulated business. So they don't like to cause a lot of attention to themselves. So <laughs> they want to just like, that's okay, that's fine. And I didn't have any representation at the time. So I was like, but look, I'm Jamaican and people do not talk to me like this and disrespect me without me saying something exactly. in response. So I just like, I just went for it basically. And uh, everything that they said, I, w- I had a counter. And with Raul Valde, I'm like, excuse me, like I'm not going to come into a courtroom and try to defend some crazy couple like what you do. You know what I'm saying? So why are you here talking to me? You're not an artist. You're not a photographer. Like, what is your point? And on top of it, I know you're like niece, you know, because I went to Scarsdale High and so did she. So that kind of got them too, because I was like this sort of privileged black person. You know, I'm not like, I'm black. I'm from the projects. I had no money. You were only ate Captain Crunch growing up. You know, no, sorry. That's not me. Level playing field. Exactly. And I know you, and I know your freaking relatives, <laughs> and you're not playing, I'm not afraid of you, and that's it. Bully tactics exactly. are not working. Not working for Renee Cox at all, and they still don't, you know? <laughs> so, so do you think, what are the critics, art critics have to say? Do they understand your work? Did they understand it then? Do oh, they no, some of them accused me of starting culture wars oh, and really? stuff like that. Oh, oh, yeah. No, they didn't defend me at all. It was the... Um, what is it? The uh, it's like actors, directors. It was like this. I forget the name. I think it was Creative Coalition or something like that. They rallied around me, hmm. bless them. But uh, you know, art world was uh, you know why are you speaking out so much? And I'm like, well, I have to defend my work. I don't see anybody else speaking for me when it happened to Chris O'Feely. He had Sachi and this one and that one to do the talking for him. And I think he did maybe one interview, but I didn't have that uh, luxury. And I wasn't going to look like some, you know, mealy mouth afraid victim, you know, while people were attacking my work. Because my whole point was, okay, I'm nude. Why am I nude? (laughs) Because being nude, it doesn't bring up any class issues or you can't place it. There was nothing sexual about it as far as I'm concerned. I was always like, I can't imagine anybody getting up and jerking off (laughs) to me (laughs) there with my arms outstressed with this, you know, white fabric over it, looking directly into the camera at the center of the table. And I was like, I remember going to Catholic school the first four years, and they said that we were created in the likeness of God. So I always wondered why God had like blonde hair and blue eyes when he came from the Middle East, which kind of didn't really make a lot of sense because people weren't really traveling like that, and I don't think they were fucking like that either. So theoretically, he should have been, you know, brown hair, <laughs> brown eyes, and a at least a deep olive complexion. And uh, so I didn't hesitate to do that. Yeah. The incident happened. 
the students were there, right? Yeah, and they were fantastic. And then the next day or next week, whatever. I'm on the news. <laughs> I'm so like all over the place. You're, you're back in the classroom. Yeah. Right. Okay. So at that point, did you? What did you feel your obligation was as an artist with these young minds? What did they? Well, need? to let them know that you have to speak your truth. Okay. That's what it is, and you can only speak your truth, and that's when it becomes really poignant. So, is that what you feel is the role of the artist? I mean, I do. The truth. I, I mean, for me personally, yes. I mean, I have some colleagues who would say. No, they have no responsibility, blah, 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 blah. But I feel for me, and I don't judge them, they can do what they want. But for me, I feel like I have a responsibility at least to bring up questions as to how our culture might become better or something that can um, facilitate a change that's would be positive for all. Yeah. And to deal with, most of my work has dealt with, you know, sort of breaking stereotypes. That's been one of my big pet peeves in terms of how uh, black people have been represented by Caucasian people. And that's been done from a a fiscal, monetary, (laughs) slavery point of view. So, and it's always been very negative. And it's still negative to this day. I mean, you turn on the 12 o'clock, 12 noon, whatever news or... Or even the evening news, and oh, I mean, what are they giving me? They're giving me some poor black kid somewhere in some depraved n- neighborhood, you know, I don't know, stealing somebody's handbag or something like that. Whereas I'm saying, but wait, no, white people you need to be scared of. They're the ones that dropped nuclear bombs on, you know, Hiroshima and Nagasaki killing millions of people. You know, these guys are just knocking off or disturbing, you know, not even 10 people. Maybe it's five. So who who do I need to be really afraid of? You know, those that are poisoning our foods, poisoning our waters because you're only interested in making money. Yeah, which has nothing to do with the greater good. So. So I know you have papers. You've recently been rewarded with being invited to. Sh- into the archives of American artists, Smithsonian. What? I don't know if it's a reward. I think it's a natural progression. And I think it was quite astute on their part to do so. Now, let's be clear. I mean, the papers and whatnot, that's all about the process of making art. Okay. So that's what that informs. You know, I don't, I didn't write any kind of manifesto or anything of that nature. It's merely a, um, a progression that down the road for future generations, when they're doing research on me, it may give them some more insight into how my process and how I worked. That's really what the archive is about. And then when I die, they can take all the rest of the stuff, all the, you know, the big finished pieces and so on and so forth. So the, the letters and papers, this is all the sort of minutiae. I love listening to you talk, Renee. As a young artist, who influenced you? Um, I probably 
Look at the filmmakers first. So you're talking about Fellini, who I've mentioned before. I love before. Fellini. I love his films. You know, Antonioni. Um, um, Truffaut, Somme. Notice they're all foreigners. Uh, Almond. What? I mean, well, there was Lena Wattmuller, who was great until she moved to Hollywood, and then she really sucked after that. They, like, ruined her. <laughs> she did Swept Away, and that was a fabulous film way back in the day. But then when she got to Hollywood, I don't know, it was, it got, I mean, it wasn't as good. That's all I can say about that. Mm-hmm. Um, and um, then from photo, Avedon, Penn, um, those guys, classic, mm-hmm. you know photographs and oh and then hey how could I forget like Kubrick Stanley Kubrick that was like like definitely uh, I can't not like a role model but definitely somebody that you can still look at today in fact I saw the film Harriet not so long ago and I was like I wish she had looked at Kubrick's Barry Lyndon for the lens that opens up to like one candle power because she had some scenes in there of the slaves in their slave hut and the thing was like way too like overlit. <laughs> and I was like- Lighting. Yeah, I was like, what the hell is up with that? You're showing two lanterns and there's light coming from the back, the side, the hip, all over the place. I'm like, who the hell was the cinematographer anyway? So you had an eye for lighting back then. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. I mean, light, no light, no photography. Yeah. And how do your students deal with light? Uh, well, I'm push, I push them towards strobes and whatnot, using strobes, and they're coming along with that, but also available light, too. Mm-hmm. It's all about lighting. If you don't have lighting, you don't have an image, period, end of story. So, I mean, lighting is important, and it's important to know how light falls on a face. And I think it's important to try to, you know, make people look as best as they possibly can, too. You said the best as they possibly can. Yeah, through lighting, using lighting as well. And the so. lighting, so so we have iPhones, Androids, whatever, and we get to manipulate the lighting. What do you well, mean? we get to use filters. Filters. Yeah. So, but I mean, I have, I'm not going to lie. I mean, I have fun with filters. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> exactly. You know, I'm not against them or anything like that. Um, I think, you know, because the thing with photography, it's also about the idea. What are you trying to convey? Mm-hmm. So, yeah. So recently uh, you were included in this book, Great Women Artists. Right. Thank Tell God. Tell us about that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> thank God. <laughs> Legendary. Yeah. Well, Documentation. I mean, it was. It, it's definitely nice to know that I'm in there, <laughs> and that I'm in like uh, relatively good company. Yes. So I mean, I'm not mad at it at all. I am in gratitude. <laughs> for well, 2019 it. is a good year for you. You had a few yeah. exhibitions, few shows. Yeah, I brought back together your mama and David, which was originally a diptych. But when Marsha Tucker was putting together the Bad Girls show at the New Museum, 
back in the uh, early 90s, she came to my studio at the Whitney Independent Study Program and she saw those images, but she gravitated towards your mom and was like, I want that. And then David got kicked to the curb. So he was never shown until very recently in October. Is that because his penis was revealed? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And it was a nice penis. A nice penis. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yes. So <laughs> since it was revealed, <laughs> they didn't, you know, it was called the Bad Girl Show, so they didn't really want any penises in it. So he got kicked to the curb and nobody ever saw that it was a diptych. Oh. So finally, after all these years, I was able to bring both of them back together and show it as a diptych at uh, Cat House proper in uh, Brooklyn, just the two pieces. And why do you, so that was nice? How have things changed? I mean, what's in your eyes, in your opinion? Why are we more accepting of his penis than we were twenty years ago? <sighs> I don't know if we're accept, more accepting of, of his penis now than then. I mean, I would say to you, 20 years ago, in a lot of ways, was a lot less prude as it is today. I think it's more prude today. I agree. And people are totally freaking paranoid, and it's like politically correct and all this other bullshit that it doesn't allow, like, even the, I mean, I think it kills imagination and stuff like that. I want to backtrack again because I still am curious to learn more, hear more about what happened with you in 2019, your exhibits, because I know you had a a show at Pen and Brush in addition to a couple others. Please share Mm -hmm. it with us. Um, I was able to show my video, Sacred Geometry, at Pen and Brush, in the fall of uh, 2019, um, I was also um, there was a show at Harvard that I was in where I was able to show uh, one of my pieces from the Queen Nanny series, The Warrior. Uh, let me see. I mean, it was a bunch of things. <laughs> and when, when the, so, the, so at the Harvard, what was the underlying theme of that particular? I don't know. I, I forget. I mean, you know, it's sort of like it, I know it was a good show, and uh, I was happy about that. And uh, it's kind of, you know, it's like hard to sort of lie. It was a group show, too. So I tend to not really necessarily remember every freaking group show that I'm in. You know, because there's like a lot of them. So it's sort of like, it's like you send the work and that's great. You know what I'm saying? So what's next, Renee? We'll see what happens. You know, I'm continuing to work. Um, I've got some, you know, new projects and ideas in mind. Can you share any of that with us? No. 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 Not the thing? No, because, no, because it's like, I'm not into that in a way. Because, you know, it's sort of like... I feel when somebody asks me that that's their stress and their anxiety of like going, what's next? What are you doing next? Well, I'm just curious about no, I know, themes that might connect work. Well, I would say this, keep your eyes peeled and you're going to see some stuff. Okay. That's what's going to happen because I don't want to play that game, you know, because then it like makes me have to go like, 
Okay, what am I doing next? Let me see. Let me make something up interesting to tell them about. And then it's like, you know, it's too stressful. And I'm not into stressing myself out. When it comes, it comes, and it'll be fucking genius. It's the beauty of being an artist. Exactly. Just let it flow. That's that's what everybody should do is let it flow. You know? I don't want to be on antidepressants or anything like that. (laughs) (laughs) I want to just keep it real. I want to enjoy, and I'll say enjoy, J-O-Y, my life situation here, and to remain happy and be happy. So if there's a statement or thought that you can share with us before we end this session, what would it be that would be helpful to emerging, young emerging artists? Well, I would say to them, you validate yourself. Do not ask the others to validate you. Because if you're asking the others, remember that you're asking crazy people to validate you. By that I mean turn on the evening news, pick up a history book, look at any of the you know stories over the last centuries and so on and so forth, and you will see sheer madness. So it's not healthy for you to ask crazy people to make you feel like you're relevant or significant. That has to come from within. And that would be my, I think my biggest thing, because I know for me, once I understood that, there was a load of bricks that were lifted from my shoulders. Well, that's very important. Thank you so much, Renee. You're very welcome, Phyllis Hollis. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Cerebral Women Art Talks podcast. For additional content, please visit CerebralWomen.com and be sure to follow Cerebral Women on Instagram. Instagram.